Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and over the course of this show, we'll be creating an entire campaign for you to run from scratch. That means we're building an entire starting town from scratch, learning how to help our players create characters to play in the game, and then we're developing the various scenarios that make up a campaign. To this point, we've been building a campaign for Deadlands Classic, and that's what we're going to continue to do today. Last week we began by continuing to build our scenario where our characters attempt to rescue a family being held hostage by some nasty dudes. We got them rescued, got them back to triumph, then laid out some of the background about the person actually responsible for what happened. Then our group got some downtime. Once we finished creating that, I went back and did a campaign debriefing where I detailed how my group played through the very scenario we built. I also went one step further by detailing things they did during their downtime. Or, more to the point, things I did to them during their downtime. Now, before we start building this week, I forgot to have you hand out chips to the group last week. So if you didn't think to do it on your own, give each player two white chips for getting the job done. Also, toss a green chip into the box before your players draw their chips again. So... Let's pick up where we left off last week, and by the way, if you're new to this show, I really do pick up right where we left off in our last episode. So if you go back to the archives for this show and listen to episode 6, you'll be able to tell we're starting right where we left off. Our players need to head to Santa Fe as our Black Widow is there looking to find someone else to rip off and possibly do away with. And for the record, those are lowercase letters on Black Widow because we don't want a lawsuit from either Marvel or Disney. Thank you very much. They're probably going to want to take horses only since using a wagon will take them longer to get to Santa Fe. For the record, you're going to need to figure out approximately how long it's going to take to get to Santa Fe. We knew it took about a day and a half on horseback to get to Buzzard's Peak, and we know it takes about six days to get from Triumph to Dodge City. So with that information in hand, we can approximate the time. Don't worry about being 100% accurate unless you deal with OCD and you need to be that accurate. I decided it would take about two weeks and I ran with it. If your arithmetic works out differently, go with yours over mine. I also decided I wasn't going to have anything happen during the trip because I didn't really feel like messing with a bunch of random encounters on the ride. But you should feel free to present your players with a variety of colorful characters during their trip, and if you want them to get ambushed, do that as well. Again, it's your game. Make it as colorful as you would like it to be. Historically, there were all kinds of groups of people who would choose to caravan together on long trips, and since the group will be on the Santa Fe Trail, they could run into a traveling carnival, or a traveling circus, or groups of homesteaders headed for a new life, or missionaries heading for lost angels. I think you get the idea. Like I said, if you want to go that way, please do so. That type of color can be the extra spice a game session needs. My group basically wanted to cut to the chase, and since I created this part of the campaign on the fly, I agreed, and we cut to their arrival in Santa Fe. Santa Fe is much larger than Triumph, which admittedly doesn't take much, but is also larger than a lot of other towns and cities at the time. I'm probably going to make it out to be a lot larger than it actually was in 1876, but that's okay. As your group gets close enough to Santa Fe to see it, they need to decide what they want to do first. Do they enter town and start questioning folks to see if they've seen the woman? Do they head to taverns and start their canvas that way? Or do they head to the jail and speak with the chief of police? 
The smart money for your group would be to head to the jail and speak with the chief of police. After all, they've got a letter of introduction from a Texas ranger, and that should go a long way towards helping them out. At the minimum, the chief might have a direction that they could start looking in. So, the plan should be for the group to head straight for the jail in order to meet up with the chief of police. However, as the GM, you have the ability, and frankly the right, to put in whatever types of flavor and or distractions you want for your group. Look, by this point, you're running the game long enough, you should start to have an idea of how your group is going to respond to different situations. And you should also have an idea of what you can present to your players to provide flavor without taking too much time on things that don't tie into the game itself. Plus, there will be some time for them to explore and or goof off a bit once they make their introductions. Now, I've mentioned this once or twice already, but it bears repeating. I did a large part of this scenario on the fly with my group, so it doesn't have my usual level of research like I would into Santa Fe for the late 1800s. So I didn't worry about trying to lay out the city like it would have been at that time. Instead, in my mind, I divided the city into three sections. The high rent district, the poor district, and everything else. And I realize that's way oversimplified. But as I said, I did this on the fly. I would encourage you to take a bit of time and do some Google searches for information on Santa Fe at that time, 1876, if you're looking to lay things out and be historically accurate. And for the record, I'm going to be doing a lot more of that moving forward. Anyway, the group will reach the jail, which is in the everything else part of Santa Fe. It's a decent-sized jail since it holds not only city criminals, but also the holding cells for county criminals awaiting trial, and it's used by federal officials to hold their criminals for trial. So, that's a good reason as to why it would be a lot larger. This is reinforced by what your players will see when they get to the jail. The building takes up at least a square half block, and it has a reinforced set of double doors to enter. Once they enter, they're further impressed by the size and purpose of the building, as the office they see only takes up about a third of the building size. There's a desk about 10 feet inside the door that basically acts as a gateway to the rest of the office slash station. There is an armed officer manning the desk, and they'll be dealing with that officer in a minute. Quick glance through the rest of what they see, they see the stereotypical bullpen setup of police stations that we've seen throughout film and television history, with a half a dozen or so desks, with one or two of them currently staffed with officers doing paperwork. They also notice an office in the left rear corner with a door with the words Chief of Police painted on it. There's also a set of double doors in the right rear of the room, and the number of locks on them should indicate that that's the access to the cells. There's also a number of storage closets on the right-hand wall. Okay, so with the layout complete, let's get back to the interaction. The desk officer will stop them, and once they show their letter of introduction, he'll take it, call to one of the other officers to take it from him, and asks the group to wait until they have an answer. The chief will see the group, and he lets them know that as so long as they don't do questionable things in an open, overt way, they'll have no issues with him. He also has some information to share with them. The Black Widow has been reported to be in the high-rent district, schmoozing with the high rollers at the Grand Hotel. He's well aware of the bounties for her arrest, but unfortunately hasn't been able to get an officer close enough to her without spooking her. The Grand Hotel also has an arrangement with certain business people in Santa Fe that prevents the police from operating there in an overt manner. 
That also means they just can't go in, search rooms, and holler out. So the chief has a rotation of officers working undercover in the hotel to try to get close enough to her so that they can arrest her and bring her in. However, he's tired of playing the game and would just as soon have her out of his town and out of his hair so he can get back to the regular business of policing his city. He offers the names of his undercovers, Bruce Collins and Trevor Mitchell, and provides a description of both men. He also provides the group with a note identifying them as associates that are there to help bring the widow in. How the group chooses to do this is up to them, but the chief again reiterates that they need to be more covert than overt. That's the information the group gets. Should you have someone who looks for bounties to bring in, the chief will have one for them. Izzy Fulton, who's a notorious pickpocket, has been relieving high rollers of their winnings in and around the Grand Hotel for the past few days. And with his undercovers focusing on the widow, they can't risk their mission to take him down. Again, he provides a description, which I will leave to you to come up with so it's to your liking. And again, notes that Izzy has been reportedly basing himself out of the Grand Hotel. The reward for bringing Izzy in is $500, but they want him alive. Once the meeting with the chief is complete, the group has to decide how they want to do things. One thing they need to consider is accommodations. Again, they need to take into account that at least some of them will need to be in the Grand Hotel in order to scope out and find the widow. They can choose to get rooms at the hotel if they want. As per the common gear page in the player's guide, one day in a high-class hotel is $10. By now, the group should have that kind of money. They need to afford it. If they don't, it's not a big deal. They can get a room in another hotel in another part of town for two bucks a day. However, anyone going into the Grand to gamble is going to want to look the part. And unless the characters in question dress fancy to begin with, they're going to have to get some clothes. Again, refer to the common gear page for this. I would note that the cost of a suit or fancy dress is listed at $15. For this place, I'd add $5 to that cost. That's because they need to look like they belong in the upper crust. The characters would also be smart enough to know that the real action in a casino or card house takes place at night. So since it's daytime at this point, they should take their time, get their lodging taken care of, get their clothing purchased or cleaned, get a bath and a shave, and be ready to hit the grand once the sun goes down. This is another good spot for more of that flavor I was talking about a minute or so ago. You can have some small jobs they can pick up to make a buck or two if you want, or your gamblers could hit some smaller card tables and make some cash so they've got a stake for later in the night. Before you start up the job, make sure the group is ready to go. Make sure they've considered what their plan of action is going to be and what they're going to do. Take notes. I cannot stress that enough. The group probably won't take notes on this, and if you have notes of what they talked about, you can choose to keep them on course if you want. Or you can let that proverbial train run off the tracks and force them to think on the fly to pick up the pieces and try to save the mission. They also need to consider the fact that if they're going to take weapons in, they're going to need to be as inconspicuous as possible. Basically, that means handguns and knives only. And unless they got derringers, they're going to want to make sure their coats covered their pistols. I mean, if you walk into a place looking like you want to rob the joint, even if you can get in, you're going to have every eye in the place on you. And that guarantees whomever is working the door is going to take their sweet time checking out every single one of your group members before allowing them in. So, once the group has their plan organized, it's time to get in. For the record... 
anyone who has a room at the Grand will have no issues getting into the casino. The thought is that if they've got the kind of money needed to stay there, they've got the kind of money needed to gamble. So as long as they don't go in loaded for bear, they're going to be fine. It's the folks who aren't staying there that might have an issue. Play it like you want, but my feeling on this is that so long as they mind their proverbial P's and Q's and don't go in all obvious, they'll be fine. The Grand Hotel lives up to its name. The hotel takes up an entire city block, and the first two floors hold the casino. This casino has pretty much every type of game and gambling table that would have been available at the time, with faro, poker, blackjack, and other card games, along with roulette wheels and other table games. The upper floor is the ultra high roller level, and we'll get back to that in a minute. The bar runs the entire length of the left side of the room, and there are multiple servers wandering around the floor, taking orders and running drinks to players at the gaming tables, as well as those sitting at other tables that are just chatting, making deals, swapping tales. The group should start their plan now, with anyone who's going to game, go on and game, while the others try to find their contact. You can decide which of the undercover officers is in here, but they find him within a few minutes, and so long as they handle things in a covert manner, he'll be happy to see them. He reports he's seen the woman. She's here and wandered upstairs with a gentleman about a half an hour ago. He also notes that Izzy is up there, having headed that way shortly after he came in. The officer notes he's not up there because, quote, I'm apparently not high roller enough for them, end quote. And of course, since he's being covert, he's not flashing a badge. He notes that the second level is a quasi-club, with bouncers guarding the stairs and being exceptionally selective about who they let in. He'll suggest, if they don't think of it themselves, that either winning a large amount of money at one of the tables or offering a sizable bribe should get them up there. Again, the group has to decide how they want to handle things. And if you've got another way you think works, use it. I mean, they could have someone cause a distraction near one of the stairwells to get one or two of the group up the stairs, but of course that comes with its own built-in issues. But hey, if you've got an idea, go with it. Just, just go with it. Regardless of how they get up there, they find both Izzy and the widow. She's cozied up to him at a poker table and he's winning big. At this point, your group has to figure out how to separate either or both of them from the table and do it in a covert manner. One way to do it would be to have a player or two sit at the table and try to bust Izzy. It can be done, especially since Izzy's not the world's best card player and is also rather arrogant. So no matter what template you use, make sure he's not a gambler and make him arrogant. The widow would change from Izzy to the player making the most money, especially if they're being a bit flashy and or showing her the appropriate amount of affection. Again, it's up to you and your group, but once a player gets her separated from Izzy, he runs off like a scalded dog to leave the place, and she'll suggest she and the player take their conversation somewhere more private. We'll get back to Izzy in a minute. Sticking with the widow, she actually doesn't have a room in the Grand. She'll try to convince the player to head off to her room, which is in a hotel in the poorer section of town. She'll say things like she's down on her luck and she's just looking for the right person to help her get back on her feet. Again, I know the stuff's stereotypical, so change it up however you feel it needs to be to work best. For the record, and you are the only one who should know this, 
it's imperative they find a way to neutralize the woman before she gets the player back to her hotel. If they don't, the player will be jumped by some heavy hitters as soon as they enter, which could lead to serious injury and or death. From a timing perspective, give it 15 to 20 minutes of, I guess, real time if you want to, but I'm thinking more game time. As long as they get it figured out within 20 minutes of game time, they'll be fine. Hey, look, your group's pretty creative. I'm sure they're going to think of something to do within 20 minutes. Okay, so let's get back to good old Izzy for a minute. Unless someone spots him coming down the steps, they'll lose him in a crowd at the entrance to the hotel. However, anyone tailing the player and the widow will pick him back up as he sneaks along the opposite side of the street, and when he feels the time is right, he crosses the street, draws a blade, and approaches the player as if he intends to stab him in the back. Now, this might help the group get them both at the same time. Once they get them, they'll need to deliver them to the jail, and they're going to want to do that quietly. Have them make Cognition 10 rolls. That takes into account them checking their surroundings and making sure they're keeping their prisoners as quiet as they can. The jail doors aren't unlocked, but a knock gets an officer to let him in, and the chief is still there. He claims he was on his way out, but he's more than happy to see them there at that point. He'll escort them and their quarry to the cells and locks them up in individual cells. He'll also pay the bounty on Izzy, though he notes that they'll need to meet up with the feds to collect their other bounties. Of course, he does offer to wire them first thing in the morning to check into getting them their money as fast as possible. Once they've dropped off their prisoners, they have the rest of the evening to do what they'd like. If they have the hotel from the widow, they can go check it out. However, by the time they get there, her room is cleared out and there's nobody there. So it sounds like somebody tipped off the thugs. The group can try to investigate, but they're going to come up empty. And besides, they're not going to want to start pushing things with the cops. They're going to want to play it cool since they still don't have all their money. Okay, so this is where we ended the play session with my group that began with last week's stuff. So this is where we're going to end the creator part of today's show. That means we need to shift gears and get into the campaign debriefing and see how my group handled what we just created. So... If you'll remember, the group had a rather interesting evening the night before, and Scott's character was still trying to figure out exactly he'd done because he couldn't remember. As they departed for Santa Fe, he was still asking to make rolls to see what he could remember, and that's where I dropped the memory that he'd cuddled with the young lady, but he couldn't remember anything more. The group chose to move through the trip, so long as I had nothing else for them, and since I was running on the fly and didn't really want to bog down the action, I agreed. So we fast-forwarded to mid-morning and their arrival in Santa Fe. Now, the players immediately wanted to scope things out. They checked with the train stations and as many stagecoaches as they could, giving the description of the widow and seeing if she'd left on anything or had approached any of them about purchasing tickets or a departure in some manner. Needless to say, they came up empty. They made it a point to scan the citizenry as they rode through town, trying to see if the widow would be out and about. But realizing pretty quickly that she would probably be in hiding during the day, they turned their focus on getting to the police station and meeting with the chief. They got to the station, and the encounter went much as I laid it out in the creation part of the show. Jim was the only one who asked about a bounty, and I know that for him I didn't name the target Izzy, but since my notes are still missing, we'll call him Izzy for our purposes. He got the information on the bounty, which in this game didn't have any information on where he was, so Jim knew he was going to have to do some searching for his target. However, Jim decided to put the bounty on the back burner while he and the rest of the group laid out their plan for that night. 
I, I do need to mention that Aniston was out for the night, so I played his character as more of an NPC. That left Jim, Scott, Gabe, and Max to game plan, and they decided that Scott and Gabe would get rooms at the Grand Hotel, as well as nice clothes and everything else they'd need to fit in. To make sure they'd have enough money, Jim provided them with cash from the group fund, which they'd wisely decided to start a few days before they left Triumph. It was also decided that Jim, Max, and Aniston would get cheap hotel rooms so that they'd have their manpower spread out a bit, and that would allow them to search in multiple places if they lost the Widow at the Grand. Now, here's where I need to point out that my game gets a bit different from what we've created, and that's because what I did with Jim and his bounty wasn't as good as I would have liked it to be, so I set up the creative for your game to be a bit smoother. Okay, so with the disclaimer out of the way, it was agreed that Gabe and Scott would get into the Grand Hotel and scope out to try to find the Widow. Aniston would be posted up across the street from the hotel, keeping an eye on those who came in and out, so that if Gabe and Scott lost her, he could pick her up, follow her to wherever she went, and come back and take the boys to her. With the plan in place, and some time before things would start heating up, Jim and Max decided to follow a clue that they had picked up towards the bounty, which in my game was wanted for assault or suspicion of killing someone. They went to a hotel room in the Load Rent District, bribed the desk clerk, and got access to his room. They found weapons, a bit of money, and papers indicating he was guilty of what he'd been charged with, and also noting that he was going to take out a high roller that night. So with their target headed towards their other target, Jim and Max decided to head off towards the Grand Hotel and see what they could do to stop Izzy from doing what he'd promised to do. While that was going on, Gabe and Scott hit the casino floor. Gabe immediately hit the tables and could not miss a roll for gambling. I'm serious, he won a whole bunch of money. Scott was having some drinks and schmoozing with folks and finally found the undercover officer. They spoke for a few minutes, with Scott buying him a drink to maintain cover. He got the information that she was upstairs and was told that she was, quote, hanging on some poor sucker, end quote. Scott got word to Gabe, who stopped playing cards, mostly because nobody wanted to play at a table he was at anymore. They approached one set of stairs and were turned down until they paid a bit of cash, as well as a top-shelf drink to the bouncer. They made their way upstairs, and it didn't take long to find the widow, as she was being a bit more obvious than she should have been. That was my fault. I decided to make some rolls on her behalf, and I rolled like garbage. Gabe decided the best way to get the woman away from the man would be to sit down and gamble, so he did. Again, Gabe just could not miss. I'm serious. I tried to scare him off by increasing the minimum bids by thousands of dollars, and while he did lose a couple of hands, eventually I decided I had to end it, and I had Izzy, who was the guy at the table, do a double-or-nothing bet. I lost, and I'd been calculating how much money was out there. Oh my god, Gabe won $40,000 at this table. Yeah, I actually did that. Again, there's a reason I'm the bad GM. The widow, who had started hanging on Gabe when he started winning big, now suggested they head off to somewhere more private. Izzy was cussing Gabe, accusing him of cheating and other things, but as Gabe and the widow walked away from the table, Scott caught up with Izzy, who'd pulled a knife and used his powers of persuasion to calm him down. The fact he bought him a drink didn't hurt things either. So that bought Gabe and the widow a bit of time to get further away. When Izzy was done with his drink, he headed off, and Scott waited an appropriate amount of time before taking off himself. Aniston picks up Gabe and the widow when they come out of the hotel, and he paced them as they walk down the street. 
A few moments later, Jim and Max got about a half a block or so from the hotel, and they noticed Izzy coming out, knife hidden behind his back. Jim figured out what was about to happen, and he pulled me aside to ask a question in private. And the question was this. Could he act like a cop to get close to both Izzy and the widow, and when he went off to cuff Izzy, cuff the widow as well? I thought about it for a minute, and I realized that the way Jim dresses is much like county law would dress in much of the county. So yeah, I agreed he could. With that, we returned to the table, and I continued through my descriptions of what was going on, waiting for Jim to give me his signal. Needless to say, the widow had her hands all over Gabe, and he quickly figured out she had her hands primarily on his pockets, which is where he'd stashed his cash. Jim and Max quickened their pace and got within 20 feet of Izzy as he got within about five feet of Gabe. That's when Jim called out to Izzy and put the plan in motion. I made some rolls, I had Jim make a roll, and by golly, it worked. He managed to get Izzy to stop and drop his knife, and as he tried to explain himself, basically by insisting Gabe had ripped him off, Jim and Max cuffed both Izzy and the widow. By this point, Scott caught up with the group and used his vocal ability to literally get the crowd to believe that there was nothing to see here. Anderson crossed the street, the group circled their prisoners, and they carefully made their way across town, headed for the jail. I had to make a few rolls just to see if someone was eagle-eyed enough to figure out what was going on, but the rolls failed, so the group was good. They got to the jail, deposited the prisoners, and shook hands with the chief. When they explained what had happened, the chief, noting that Gabe was toting around a lot of money, offered to lock it in the safe in his office for the evening, and that he could stop by first thing in the morning and he'd accompany them to the bank to deposit it. Gabe agreed and watched the chief lock the money away. The chief also paid Jim the bounty money and thanked all of them for a job well done. So, this puts us at the point where we ended the creative part of the show at, but it didn't end my game night. The boys returned to the Grand Hotel to have a few beverages and decompress. Scott, wanting to explore his powers a bit more, made it a point to eyeball any woman coming in wearing a fur stole or coat. Now, if I was a smart GM, I'd have not had anyone wearing one. But not knowing what he was up to, I called one out to him. Now to pause for a minute. This is one of those times you need to learn from my mistakes and stupidity because none of this should have been allowed to happen. Ever. Okay, so Scott gets close to the woman and stretches out his powers. I rolled to see if by chance the fur was new enough to qualify for Scott's powers. For the record, I rolled a d20 and decided that if it was 20, the fur was only a day or so removed from the animal it came from. And wouldn't you know, I rolled a 20. So I had the animal tell him it was a skunk and not the mink the woman supposedly thought it was. This led to a discussion between Scott and the gentleman with the woman with the man getting agitated. Long story short, this led to the man killing himself and Scott using his powers to figure out why. Again, kids, I did this on the fly, and in retrospect, I shouldn't have, okay? The guy admitted he was living in lies, and Scott's little discussion unraveled him, causing him to realize the only way out was to take his own life. Needless to say, this brought the cops in, and they hauled off Scott, with Jim going along because he wasn't letting Scott go anywhere by himself. There was a bit more that happened after this, but in my opinion, it was both stupid on my part and lousy creative on my part, so I'm not wasting any more time by putting it here. What I will say is that I should have called a rap on the game night after they saw the chief, but since Jim had only gotten there about an hour before, I didn't want to deprive him of a decent amount of game time. So, that's another note for you. When you're out of material for the night, 
end the night. That goes double for when you're running on the fly. When you're out of what you consider to be decent material, end the game. See, I told you you'd be learning from my mistakes. And I think we've got a good end point for today's show. At this point in our little podcast, I need to give you an idea of where my group is compared to where we are in the creation process. My group plays every other week, and when we did the first game recap, my group had already played three sessions. The plan was to stay at least two sessions ahead, but then we missed the game two weeks ago. So, as of right now, my group is one session ahead of the show, and we play tomorrow night, which is Saturday for those of you listening when we drop on Friday morning in the U.S., Depending on how far we get this week, we might be completely caught up by the time my group plays again in two weeks, but we shall see. Regardless, we're going to keep on keeping on for as long as the game keeps on rolling. But this is also a good time to start thinking about what game we're going to do next. So what do you want to see us do next? I'm game for just about anything, but you need to let me know on any of the socials or by email so I can start making plans, especially if I need to go buy a couple of books. I also want to take a minute to promote my other podcast, Role Playing History. This week, we celebrate the one-year anniversary of the show with a look back at our first episode. Much like my game from time to time, there were things about that episode I wanted to change, so I took advantage of our anniversary to do so. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all of your license-free and royalty-free music needs for your presentation. All Deadlands Classic books referenced in this show are licensed and trademarked by Pinnacle Entertainment Group, and we use them here for entertainment purposes only. Bad GM's campaign build-along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook, Bad GM Productions, Twitter, at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions, Twitch, Bad GM, and you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. As always, I want to thank all of you for joining us thus far on our little journey to make your game life easier to manage. And thanks also for all of the comments and support. And like I always say, I'll keep making episodes for you as long as you'll keep listening. So next week, we keep on keeping on, and I look forward to joining you then. Until then, this is Bad GM's Campaign Build Along, and I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis. Ciao.